Hey, I'm Jamie Borchick. I'm a teaching pastor here at Park. It is great to have you with us on this beautiful Sunday morning. Uh, if you've got a Bible, you can find 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians 15, we're going to be in verses 12 to 34 this morning. Now, a few years ago, journalist Nicholas Kristof of the New York Times did an interview with a woman named Serene Jones. Serene Jones is the president of Union Theological Seminary in New York City. And in that interview, Christoph asked Jones what she thinks happens when people die. Now remember, this is the president of a Christian seminary answering this question. And her direct response to the question of what happens when people die was this. She said, I don't know. I don't know. There may be something. There may be nothing. My faith is not tied to some divine promise about the afterlife. Christoph went on to ask her if he could be considered a Christian, despite the fact that he does not believe in the virgin birth of Christ or in the resurrection. And Jones replied, well, you sound an awful lot like me, and I'm a Christian minister. So Serene Jones identifies as a Christian minister, and yet she does not believe in the resurrection. Now, as Phil talked about last week, at the foundation of the Christian faith is the story that Jesus Christ died on a cross, was buried, and on the third day was raised from the grave. Resurrection is central to the Christian faith. And yet for many people, resurrection is really, really, really hard to believe. I mean, I don't know about you, but everyone I've ever known who has ever died and been buried has stayed dead afterward. The whole idea of resurrection can sound rather absurd. Because in our world, it just doesn't happen. And for that reason, lots of people don't believe it, including people like seminary president Serene Jones. And yet here we are in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And this whole chapter is all about resurrection. And what's fascinating about it, for those of us living some 2,000 years removed from the time of Jesus, is that it seems that the reason Paul is writing this whole section of this letter is because some of the Christians in Corinth were in substantial agreement with Serene Jones. They too were having a really hard time believing in resurrection. Throughout this letter, Paul has been responding to issues or questions that have been brought to him from Corinth. And in each section of the letter, he has addressed those issues head on. He's introduced the issue up front and then he's jumped into a response. But here in chapter 15, Paul started off by summarizing and reminding us of the gospel. He spent the first 11 verses talking about Jesus' life, death, and resurrection and the appearances he made afterward. But he hasn't yet given us any indication as to why. We don't know the issue here. Until we get to verse 12. And in verse 12, Paul states the issue clearly. He writes, Now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead. So here's the issue. Some in Corinth were on Serene Jones' team. Some of the Corinthian Christians were saying there is no life after death, there is no resurrection. And our passage today is Paul's response to them and to her and to anyone else who has a hard time believing in the resurrection. And maybe that's you here today too. So let's read it together. This is 1 Corinthians chapter 15, beginning in verse 12. 
Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We're even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about him that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order. Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end, when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that he is accepted who put all things in subjection under him. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him, that God may be all in all. Otherwise, what do people mean by being baptized on behalf of the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptized on their behalf? Why are we in danger every hour? I protest, brothers, by my pride in you, which I have in Christ Jesus, I die every day. What do I gain if, humanly speaking, I fought with beasts at Ephesus? If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. Wake up from your drunken stupor as is right, and do not go on sinning. For some have no knowledge of God. I say this to your shame. Father, there is a lot happening in this passage. There's strong words in here. There are important, serious considerations. And I ask as we discuss it this morning, as I preach this passage, would you give us eyes to see and ears to hear? Would you speak, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. There are three paragraphs in our text, and each paragraph lays out a piece of Paul's response. Paul begins in the first paragraph in verses 13 to 19 by assuming the negative. What if those who disbelieve the resurrection are right? What if there is no resurrection of the dead? Starting in verse 13, Paul lists out a series of consequences, if that is the case. In verse 13, if resurrection doesn't happen, then resurrection didn't happen for Jesus, which means Jesus is just another dead guy. And if Jesus is just another dead guy, then verse 14, preaching and faith are pointless. What we're doing right now is a huge waste of all of our time. In verse 15, if there is no resurrection, Christian ministers like me who say there is are all charlatans. We're lying to you about God. In verse 17, 
Faith accomplishes nothing, and there is no forgiveness of sin. And in verse 18, those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. Fallen asleep is a euphemism for death. It's the way that the early Christians talked about believers who had formerly passed away. They were not dead and gone. They were merely sleeping, waiting for Jesus to return someday and wake them up to resurrection life. But if there is no resurrection, what that means is that anyone who has died previously is just dead. Period. End of story. Now, several years ago, I had a conversation with an elderly man that I was close to. He was nearing the end of his life, and I cared deeply about him, and I really wanted him to know Jesus. And so I I went to see him, and I sat with him, and I asked him what he thought would happen to him after he died. And he looked at me when I asked that question, and he said simply, they'll bury me in a box. And I said, well, what about after that? What do you think will happen after they bury you in a box? And he just said, I'll be in a box. And look, if there is no resurrection, then he's right. All of us and all of your loved ones who have passed away, who maybe you're hoping to see someday again, all of us in the end, all of us and all of them, if there's no resurrection, we just end up in a box or in an urn or scattered to the winds of the earth. If there is no resurrection, what it means is that death has the last word. All of which leads us to verse 19, which is the proverbial and rather appropriate nail in the coffin here. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. In other words, without the resurrection, the dumbest thing you can possibly be is a Christian. And why is that? Well, it's because in the Christian faith, everything hangs on the resurrection. Everything depends on the resurrection. Christianity is not a system of good advice. It is not primarily about telling you how to live a good life or to be a good person. No, Christianity is gospel. And gospel is good news. That's what it means. And that news is not about what you do or how you live, but rather it is about what Jesus did and how he lived and then how he died and then how he rose from the grave to new life. And if that news didn't happen, if that news is fake news, then there is no gospel and therefore there is no Christianity. Theologian Andrew Wilson sums it up like this. He says, if the corpse of Jesus had been found somewhere in the Middle East, It would not mean that the walls of Christianity need repointing. It would mean that the entire house has come crashing down. The gospel cannot survive a dead Savior. The gospel cannot survive a dead Savior. That is what is at stake with the resurrection. Those are the negative consequences of no resurrection. Let's turn the question around. What if, on the other hand, what if resurrection is actually real? What if resurrection is real? In the next paragraph, Paul flips the script, and he lays out the positive consequences of the resurrection. Look at verse 20. But in fact, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. 
Paul is emphatic that Christ has been raised. And he refers to Christ's resurrection as the first fruits. Now, first fruits, for those of you Chicagoans who are a little less agriculturally inclined, my uh, in-laws are here today who, who my father-in-law was a farmer, and so I know a little bit about the agricultural world, thanks to my in-laws. First fruits are the beginnings of a harvest. And if I get any of this wrong, Shane and Jackie, you can correct me later. You can educate me further, okay? But first fruits are the beginnings of a harvest. These are the crops that ripen earliest and indicate that more is yet to come. More is on the way. So this is the first installment of a later payday. And Jesus, Paul says, is the first fruits. And Paul is saying that because Jesus was raised, that means that resurrection is in fact real. And therefore, all who have fallen asleep believing in Jesus will one day later when he returns be raised with him in the end. And here's why. Look at verses 21 and 22. Paul writes, For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. So do you remember back in grade school when you're on the playground for recess and uh, you were going to play kickball with your classmates? Okay, anybody remember this experience? You've been there? So you're going to play kickball with, with your classmates and two kids step out front as team captains that are going to select teams. Now, for some of you, this was like the highlight of your school experience. You lived for this. And, and I know that for others of you, the, uh, for others of you, this is like the trauma that I'm bringing back up in your life right now. Like, like you hated this moment, okay? So I know, I, know that, I know that's reality, but I'm gonna ask you to go there with me for a minute anyway, okay? Go, with, go, go, go back to the playground with me, okay? But all of humanity, all of us, all of humanity, the whole world, we're on the playground. And two representatives walk out in front of the class as team captains. The first is Adam. This is Adam of Genesis chapters 2 and 3 fame. This is the first man, the guy who lived in the Garden of Eden where God would take walks through the garden and hang out with him. This is the one human in the history of the world who got to taste the world as it was meant to be, who got to taste a world of peace without death. So that's Adam. And in that garden, God was the sun at the center of his universe. And everything in the world, it revolves rightly around God. Everything orbited properly. It was all good in the proverbial hood. And yet the same Adam made a fateful choice. Rather than trusting God and centering his life on God, what Adam did is he turned his back on God and he rebelled against him. The word the Bible puts on what Adam did is the word sin. And when Adam sinned, he essentially removed God from the center. And everything, the result was that everything went to chaos. Adam, by himself, trying to put himself at the center rather than God, he didn't have the gravity to hold things together. And so everything unraveled. Chaos and death entered the story. And now we live in a world where everything and everyone ultimately, inevitably dies. Every story in our world right now ends in death. And Adam is on the playground, and he's drafting. And do you know who he picks for his team? Every last one of us. Every last one of us. Because like Adam, every last one of us has sinned. We've all rebelled against God and replaced him at the center with lesser things. And as a result, every last one of us starts out on team Adam. Verse 22. In Adam, all die. Present tense. 
This is our current reality in this world of death. We are on Team Adam. But then there's another team captain. And he steps up and he starts drafting. And his name is Jesus. And as Paul has been telling us all throughout this chapter, he lived the life we were meant to live but haven't. And then he died the death that we all deserve to die in our place. And then he was raised from the dead to new and better life. And now he's coming and he's drafting a new team. And his team is characterized not by death, but by life. And his team is open to any and to all who would come and who would trust in him. It's an open enrollment team. If anyone who believes can come and can join Team Jesus. And all who do get to experience the same resurrection life that he experienced. Verse 22. In Christ shall all be made alive. Future tense. This is what we have to look forward to. And as verse 23 assures us, this is what is coming for all who belong to Team Jesus. When Christ returns at his second coming, those who belong to him will be physically, bodily, resurrected, just like he was. So two team captains, Adam and Jesus. One brought death into the story, but the other brought life back into the story. And that is glorious good news. And yet it's still not the end of the story because it gets better. Look at verses 24 and 25. After Jesus resurrects his people, Paul writes, then comes the end. And when the end comes, when Jesus returns, what he does is he mops up the enemies of God. The evil spiritual forces of this world, the powers that are rebellion against God, Jesus comes and they become his footstool. He kicks back and relaxes because his work is done and they are defeated. And then verse 26, the last enemy to be destroyed is death. So right now, in this life, death never loses. Everyone and everything eventually, inevitably dies. And yet when Jesus returns, death itself will be destroyed. It will never claim another victim ever again. Now in the final two verses of this paragraph, you see the word subjection show up repeatedly. Paul uses the same verb six times in these two verses because he wants to make something abundantly clear. God the Father gave Jesus the Son a mission to accomplish. The world was in rebellion against God. There was a war raging in our world between the forces of evil and the forces of God. And the Father sent Jesus the Son to come and end the rebellion and to set things right forever. And when every enemy has been defeated, when the war is finally over, and when all things have been set right, when all things are back in subjection to the rightful king with everything centered on him once again, then Jesus' mission will have been fully and finally accomplished. And the final line of verse 28, then God will be all in all. He will be everything he was meant to be. He will be our everything forever. Now in December 1941, there's already a war raging in Europe. The Nazis have been bombarding Britain. Bombs and battles were blowing up everywhere. And then December 7th, 1941 became a date that will live in infamy. 
On that date, the Japanese bombed Pearl Harbor. Until that day, the U.S. had watched the events of the war safely from a distance. But on that date, everything changed. The bombing of Pearl Harbor brought America into World War II. And for Americans everywhere, it was a tragic day. And yet for British Prime Minister Winston Churchill, the news of the bombing had quite a different effect. Years later, reflecting on that day, in his history of the war, Churchill wrote this. He said, so we had won after all. We had won the war. No doubt it would take a long time. Many disasters, a measurable cost and tribulation lay ahead, but there was no more doubt about the end. Being saturated and satiated with emotion and sensation, I went to bed and slept the sleep of the saved and the thankful. I went to bed and I slept the sleep of the saved and the thankful. Because the U.S. had entered the war, Churchill knew that the Allies would ultimately, inevitably win. And that night, he slept the sleep of the saved and the thankful. Do y'all know what the resurrection of Jesus means? It means that Jesus has entered the war. And because Jesus has entered the war, the victory is already ours. There may be disasters. There may be cost and tribulation, but the war outcome is already assured. Game over. Team Jesus wins. And now we, even in this world, we can sleep the sleep of the saved and the thankful because the resurrection is real. And that's the positive consequence of the resurrection. Now, Paul has been arguing ferociously in this passage that the resurrection is real. But he's not done yet. He's got one more card to play. In verses 29 to 32, Paul asks a series of rhetorical questions. So far, he's been arguing for the resurrection based on what's at stake, whether it happened or not. But these questions here in these verses, they turn his argument in a much more personal direction. These questions all have to do with certain behaviors that were evident amongst real-life Christians at the time when Paul was writing. Now, we live some 2,000 years after the time when Jesus was resurrected. No one alive today, no one in this room, no one alive in the world today was there to see what really happened. There are no eyewitnesses walking around anymore. So as you and I consider the resurrection, we do so from a distance, And we have to base our conclusions on what other people who died a long time ago have to say about it. But y'all, that wasn't true when Paul was writing this letter. Paul wrote this letter some 20 years after Jesus died and rose. And that means that there were lots of people still around who were there when it happened. We saw this earlier in chapter 15. Paul told us that Jesus appeared to over 500 people at one time, most of whom are still alive. And do you know why he said that? Well, it's because those people who actually saw Jesus after the resurrection were still alive. And his first readers of this letter could have literally gone and asked them about it. And likewise, if somebody had Jesus' dead body somewhere in Jerusalem, Paul's first readers could have gone and seen it with their own eyes. So here's the point. 
Paul and many of the members of his original audience in Corinth were in the unique historical position to know for certain whether or not Jesus really did rise from the grave. They weren't dependent on clues from history. They were present while that history was happening. And they knew, one way or the other, whether or not Jesus' resurrection really happened. They knew. And what did those who were in the position of knowing for certain do? Well, they did some things that would make absolutely no sense at all if the resurrection wasn't real. We see the first thing in verse 29. Otherwise, what do people mean by being baptized on behalf of the dead? Now, this verse is one of the most interpretively difficult verses in this entire letter. And the difficult part of the verse is the phrase, on behalf of the dead. In the various commentaries, there are over 40 different interpretive proposals that get raised. So I'm going to walk through each and every one of those 40 right now to make sure, just kidding, I'm going to give you the best, I'm going to share with you the best one, the one that I think makes the most sense out of what's going on here. The preposition that's translated on behalf of, it's often used as a marker of the motivating cause or the reason why someone does something. So you could translate it rather on account of, on account of. Furthermore, the dead throughout this chapter, they're not the dead in general, but they are dead Christians in particular. The dead are the saints of old. There are brothers and sisters, believers who have already previously passed away. That's who Paul has in view when he talks about the dead. And in Corinth, Christians were being baptized on account of those saints of old, on account of those believers who had gone before them. Now, baptism, if you're not familiar, baptism is an act of faith where someone who's believed in Jesus goes down into the water to signify I'm dying with Jesus. My life is going down into the grave with Jesus. And then comes up out of the water to symbolize resurrection. I'm being raised with Christ to new resurrection life. And side note, if you're a believer in Christ, if you believe the good news and you haven't yet been baptized, you need to do that. We'll have baptism this summer. You need to sign up for baptism if you haven't done that yet. But if you put all of that together... What I think Paul is saying here is that there were early Christians who had left a significant mark on others who had followed them into the faith. So it might have been a grandmother who faithfully prayed for her grandkids. And then those grandkids, they came to faith in Jesus later. Or it might be an older man in the congregation whose life was just so incredible that it had a huge impact on younger men in the community. And then those older folks had passed away. The grandparents, the, the, the older men, they, they had passed away. And the grandkids or the younger men, they decided that on behalf of or on account of, because of the example of the grandma or the older man or someone else, they too believed in Jesus. And then they too wanted to get baptized to publicly declare their faith. And so essentially in getting baptized on account of the dead, they were saying their hope is our hope too. Their hope is our hope too. Now that interpretation, what I just shared, it may not be 100% accurate. But even if it's not, what is very clear here is that people were getting baptized because they believed that the resurrection was real. And if they knew resurrection wasn't real, and they were in position to know, then that kind of behavior of getting baptized would be inexplicable. It would make no sense. And so their getting baptized is evidence for the realness of the resurrection. And we see the second inexplicable behavior in verses 30 to 32. I want you to sit in these words for a second as I read them. Hear this. Paul writes very personally, why are we in danger every hour? 
I protest, my brothers, by my pride in you, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord. I die every day. What do I gain if, humanly speaking, I fought with beasts at Ephesus? Paul is deeply personal here. And what he's describing in these verses is his life after he believed in Jesus. Now, if you know Paul's story, you know that before Jesus, Paul had a good life. He had grown up in privilege. He was highly educated. He was on the fast track within the religious and cultural establishment of his people. Paul had it made. But what he's describing here is his life after Jesus. Danger every hour. I die every day. And if you know Paul's story, you know that's true. Paul faced constant persecution, constant opposition. He got thrown out of cities. He got thrown into prison. He got rocks thrown at him. That's what faith in Jesus brought into Paul's life. And yet Paul was in position to know whether or not the resurrection really happened. He either saw Jesus resurrected after he rose from the grave, or he didn't. And he knew one way or the other. He knew what happened. And what did Paul do with his life? Well, he staked everything on the resurrection. His whole life was based on it. And if he didn't really historically, factually, actually see the risen Christ on the road to Damascus, then why in the heck would he risk his whole life repeatedly and endure all that hardship if it was all a lie and he knew it? Paul had nothing to gain and everything to lose. You see, Paul's life is inexplicable apart from the resurrection. It is inexplicable apart from the resurrection. And for that reason, I love his conclusion in verse 32. If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. You know what he's saying? YOLO. YOLO. You only live once. If the resurrection isn't real, you only live once. Just go do what everybody else is doing. Throw a party. Have some fun. Make the most of it. Because someday you're going to die and you're going to be in a box. YOLO. And yet, as this passage is made abundantly clear, Paul is completely convinced that the resurrection is real. And his behavior and the behavior of other first century Christians is inexplicable if it's not. Now, this is not a lecture on the historical reliability of the resurrection this morning. This is a sermon. But what Paul has given us here is just a taste of the abundant historical evidence for the reliability of the resurrection. There's a German historian and theologian who has an incredible name. His name is Wolfhart Pannenberg. If you are pregnant right now, you're going to have a baby boy. Like Wolfhart would just be an incredible name. We need a wolf in our congregation. So that's him. But he, uh, he state, Wolfhart states this matter really compellingly. He says this, he says, the evidence for Jesus' resurrection is so strong that nobody would question it except for two things. First, it is a very unusual event. And second, if you believe it happened, you have to change the way you live. If you believe it happened, you have to change the way you live. The evidence was so strong that Paul changed the way he lived. And likewise, throughout this letter, Paul has repeatedly urged us to change the way we live. 
And so I find it only appropriate that in the final two verses of this section, Paul turns in our direction once again. In verse 33, Paul issues a command to the church as a whole. And this is a command that we need to heed. He says, do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. Paul is quoting from an ancient Greek poet. This would be like us using a line from Shakespeare today. And he does so to say to the church in Corinth, don't be led astray by the skeptics. Don't be led astray by the skeptics. Because the resurrection is hard to believe and has such massive implications, there have always been resurrection deniers. And because the resurrection is hard to believe and has such massive implications, there will always be resurrection deniers. But resurrection is real. And so don't be led astray by the skeptics. Do not be deceived. And then in verse 34, Paul turns directly to those skeptics, to people like seminary president Serene Jones. And he says, and I picture him pointing a very long finger in her direction as he says this. He says, wake up from your drunken stupor as is right and do not go on sinning for some have no knowledge of God. I say this to your shame. The skeptics in Corinth, just like skeptics today, claim to be sober thinkers. They claim to have reason on their side. They claim to be enlightened folk. And Paul uses this language here to deliberately say to them, you're not sober, you're drunk. The resurrection is so important and so real that to deny it is to be in a drunken stupor. It is to be hazy in your thinking, to be out of touch with reality. And moreover, if you don't believe it, you have no knowledge of God. If you don't believe in the resurrection, you are not a Christian and you have no relationship with God and you will not experience life after death. And so he says, wake up and stop sinning. Wake up and live as if the resurrection is real. Stake your life on it like Paul did. Now, these are strong words at the end of this passage, but this is a serious issue. Everything hinges on the resurrection. Eternity hangs in the balance. And Paul cares enough about us as his readers to be clear and direct with us. Life in this world is always tainted by death. Everything and everyone ends in death. But the resurrection tells us that life in this world is not all there is. This is not the way that it was meant to be. And because Jesus rose from the grave, it is not the way it will be for eternity. There is a resurrection that awaits all those who believe in Christ. Death will not have the last word because Jesus defeated death and one day he will destroy it forever. The resurrection is real and it really matters. And so if you're here today and you're a skeptic, wake up. Wake up. Now I want to finish this morning on a personal note. I became a Christian in 2005. And for the first four years after that, it was mostly smooth sailing. But then in the summer of 2009, I loaded up up my Honda Civic, which you'll see up here. And I took off on a four-month road trip across America. I drove 17,000 miles. I passed through 27 states plus Mexico and Canada. It was pretty epic. It was incredible. But along the way, 
I had a lot of time by myself in my Honda Civic to think. And as I thought, I started to ask questions I'd never really asked before. I started taking apart what I believed, my, my faith from four years ago. I started taking it apart and poking holes in it and questioning everything. I was on the brink of entering into vocational ministry. I was about to stake my whole life on this Jesus thing. And if I was going to put my whole life into something, I wanted to know that it was true. I wanted to know, like Paul knew, that this thing is true, that it's real. I didn't want to have any doubts. And on that road trip, I realized that I just didn't know. Just didn't know. And that road trip began a two-year period where I wrestled with some really intense doubts and questions about this whole Christianity thing. Kinsey and I were dating at the time, and even, we, we even broke up during that period because of the stuff that was going on with me. You can ask her about it. Like, this was really serious for me. I had sincere questions about Christianity. And I know that here today, there are some of you who likewise have sincere questions about Christianity. You're not skeptics like Serene Jones who confidently assert that it's not true, but rather you have questions. You have real questions. There are things that don't make sense to you and you're looking for satisfying answers. This morning, I've spoken forcefully about the reality of the resurrection because that's what Paul does in this passage. But as we come to a close, I want to make sure that you know today that if you've got real questions about this Christianity thing, your real questions are really welcome here. I get it because I've been there myself. And what was most helpful to me in the midst of my questions was patient, gracious, older believers who gently walked with me through that season. And if you've got questions, I want you to know that we would cherish the opportunity to walk with you like that in this season for you. But I also want you to know today that I'm standing here before you right now. And like Paul, I am staking my whole life on the reality of the resurrection. I can't know in the same way that Paul did that it's true. I can't know like that. Because I'm not an eyewitness like he was, I can't have the kind of certainty that he did. But what I do have as I stand here before you today, what I do have is confidence. I have confidence. Because of 1 Corinthians 15 and because of lots of other historical evidence, I have tremendous confidence in the reality of the resurrection. And I believe that you can have that kind of confidence too. Because though the resurrection may be hard to believe, when you look at the evidence for it, it's actually harder not to believe. In the midst of my doubts and questions, the one thing I could never shake was the resurrection. Because everything depends on the resurrection. And that leads us into a time of communion. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took bread and he broke it, saying, this is my body, which is broken for you. And then he took the cup and he poured out the wine and he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. The next day, Jesus went to the cross. And then on the third day, he historically, actually, factually rose from the grave. And ever since that day, saved and thankful members of Team Jesus have taken the bread and have taken the cup to remember and celebrate together his life and his death and his resurrection. And so today, if you belong to Team Jesus, 
This table here, this meal, it is open to you. I would invite you to come and to eat and to drink and to remember the victory that he has already secured on your behalf. And if you're here today and you're not yet on the team, if you're not yet among the saved and the thankful, my prayer for you is that today would be the day. Would you wake up and would you trust in Jesus and join us in this meal? Would you bow your heads and pray with me? In a moment, I'm going to give an opportunity. If there's someone here, maybe you're here and you're not yet part of Team Jesus. You've not yet believed, but you're hearing this. You're saying, I want Jesus in my life. I want to believe. I'm going to pray a prayer that you can join in with me. And I just invite you to pray in your heart to repeat after me the words that I say. Father, I acknowledge today that I have rebelled against you like Adam. I've been on team Adam. And I see my need for Jesus. I believe that he lived the life I was meant to live, but haven't. I believe that he died on the cross in my place for my sin. And I believe that he rose from the grave and he is alive today and that he will come again someday to bring about resurrection life for me and for all who belong to him. I invite Jesus into my life. I trust in him. And I pray that in Jesus' name. If you prayed that prayer, I invite you to join us at the table today. The table is open. I invite you to come up. If you need prayer, there are deacons on the sides. You can come and they'd love to pray with you. And if you want to talk more about this, I'll be up front after service. Come and find me. Come to the table.